This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. What's the first thing you'd do if you had more time in the day? Take a nap? Read a book? Talk with a friend? When you know what's important to you, it's easier to fit it into your schedule. Therapy can help you figure that out. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy that comes to you. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Writer's Voice today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Writer's Voice. This is the Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear Teju Cole read his story, Incoming, from the December 4, 2023 issue of the magazine. Cole, a winner of the Penn Hemingway Award and the Wyndham Campbell Literature Prize, is a novelist, critic, curator, and essayist. His novel Tremor was published earlier this year, and a new book, Pharmacon, a collection of prose pieces and photographs, will be published in 2024. Now here's Teju Cole. Incoming. Compromised. The night before everything came to an end, Miss Prosper finally agreed to sing for us. She was a serious woman, a small woman with a heavy manner, though some later recalled a twinkle in her eye and others a dry sense of humor. I remember only that her presence was full of undescribed life and uncheapened by conclusions. But ah, when she began to sing, the seriousness was like oil she had saved for a day of need. The song came out of her light and young, a hint at what she must have been before we knew her. She held the final note of each phrase for a long time. As we listened to the song that night in the apartment, a song in a dialect with few living speakers, a song she sang with no gesture toward her previous fame, the things that were to bring an end to everything were already happening. We had been compromised. The next morning, Miss Prosper and the other leaders were arrested and taken to Mint goes right to your head. Its leaves are pebbled leather. Time is the stubborn memory of wood with a trace of cloves. Sage has large, outstretched, gray-green hands. Rosemary is the pine's twin sister. Swimming in Lake Oso Beyond the circle was a clearing. Beyond the clearing, the forest began. Our group had a plan. 
When the bus came the next morning, that would be the moment to make a break for it. Some of us would be captured. Some might even be killed. But not all of us could be captured or killed. Some would reach the trees, and our plan was made in recognition of that hope. She was afraid. She went to the guide, and he told her not to be afraid. Then he prayed for her. The guide was a man of God. He was the person to talk to when your courage was failing. But I was an atheist. It wasn't my scene. That night, the guide drew me aside. He knew the prayers, he said, but he did not know if he believed any more. I am utterly terrified, he said to me. When the bus came the next morning, the people were led out of the circle. At no signal, our group made a break for it. At first, we ran as a unit, running like people in a dream. Halfway to the pine trees, we fanned out. Then we heard gunshots and began to zigzag. She ran with surprising speed. I saw her dart between a pair of trees to my left, then she was gone. I got tangled in barbed wire. The world stopped. My body filled with pain. I remembered an afternoon when I was a little girl, nine years old, the afternoon of my deepest happiness, swimming in Lake Oso. My arms were fire, my face was striped with blood, and someone saying, don't move, you'll only make it worse. Craft Talk The day would turn out to have been one of those days, but nobody knew that at the time. At most, or at best, or at worst, they expected it to be a day on which things would turn out well or less well, or pretty badly. But sometimes. Poor bastards, said the guard on this side of the fence. The guard on that side of the fence was out of earshot. The guard on that side of the fence was out of vacation days. The guard on this side of the fence reconsidered. Poor fuckers. She tried to free with the tip of her tongue a tiny tendon of beef lodged since lunch between a canine and a premolar. The sun was hot, and somebody had better move these bodies soon. Fox, not fuckers. The tongue cajoled the stringy thing. From the diaphragm, an unsanctioned sob began its upward pilgrimage. The Turbine I am writing this note while you're still asleep. It's early enough that I can open the windows in my room. By the time you read this, I'll be at work. Please pardon the strange formality of writing to you when I could just say to you in person what I want to say. But since I have failed to say it, it is reasonable to conclude that I am having some difficulty speaking. Maybe writing will help with the nerves, though I can't see what there is to be nervous about. 
I'm already being digressive. I apologize. It's probably yet another sign of the difficulty of addressing the things on my mind. But even stating that there are things on my mind gives the impression that I already know what I want to say, that all I have to do is express myself. That is not the case. There is something I have to say, something I feel it is urgent to say, but I actually do not know, I truly do not know what it is. So I suppose I am writing this in the hope that the process of writing will lead me to the words I need. I don't wish to exaggerate, but it seems to me that since you came to be with us, something momentous has happened. I am not sure if what I am describing as momentous is more connected to the fact of your arrival or to the fact of your having stayed with us, of your being here with us. Perhaps if you had not stayed, we would not have the sense that things in our lives have changed irrevocably. My husband's life and mine, the life of our son. This is not to say that we in any way wish you had not arrived or in any way wish you had not stayed. The phrase changed irrevocably might convey a negative tone, and that is not my intention. You are here with us now, and you should stay here for as long as seems right to you. We can't decide for you whether you continue to stay with us or for how long you should stay with us. What we can say is that for as long as you are here and for as long as you decide to be here, this house is your house. This home is your home. And none of what I have written should in any way be taken as questioning you or your arrival or your having stayed here. As I said, I am uncertain even of what it is I wish to say in this already overlong note. I am uncertain of what it is I have to say, and I am conscious of trying your patience by going round in circles. I confess that, in some extremely tired moments, my mind, without evidence, entertains the notion that this situation is less than optimal. The situation of your staying here with us, I mean. Of course, it is a foolish thought. It is an extremely foolish thought. And only in the depth of fatigue could I even conceive such a thought. But is anyone really herself in the depth of fatigue? I cannot trust any of my notions at such moments. Thankfully, I know on a level even deeper than my fatigue that your being here is good. It is the right thing. But even that is the wrong way of saying it, because saying it that way makes it sound as if we were doing something for you, as if we were doing you a favor, when in reality it is you who are doing us a favor. You don't say much, rarely more than a few sentences on any given day, and most of what you say is observational rather than conversational. You might make passing remarks about ants or oncoming rain, but not once have you reminisced about your youth, not once have you asked me about the dictations I sometimes bring home. Occasionally, you make startlingly technical statements. One time, when our air conditioner cut out and the temperature inside the house began to rise, I called Icicle 
and was told that there was a long wait for a repairman. I stepped out of the house, through the back door, and you followed. In the area behind the dining room was the large outdoor unit. It was silent. You looked at it from a distance and smiled. That day was ferociously hot. The turbines in the river had broken down again, and we could smell the bodies. When we got back inside, I called Icicle one more time. They told me that the repairman had just finished another job and was now on his way to us. It was at that point that you said, that'll be a damaged start capacitor. You offered no further explanation. You turned out to be right, of course. The repairman, when he arrived, used exactly the same words, but it didn't seem appropriate to ask you how you knew. With the exception of such incidents, you hardly speak. You keep your communication minimal, smiling to say yes and smiling to say no. Sometimes you incline your head ever so slightly, and it's unclear whether this indicates yes or no. People who don't know you often assume you're nonverbal. From the moment you arrived, I had to use my intuition. I suppose that's the word, intuition. That first day, I had returned from work about an hour earlier than my husband. Our son was at camp. When you turned up at the door, I was home alone. It took me only a moment to rid myself of the offensive thought that you were sans papier, that you had managed to break free. I invited you in, and the way you walked in and sat down confirmed that you had been expecting to do so. As would later prove to be the norm, the conversation between us was extremely one-sided, me doing almost all the talking. I had the increasing feeling that everything I was telling you was something you already knew. When my husband came in to find us drinking tea, I stood up in haste and said, This is Mira. I have no idea where the name came from. It just popped into my head. You smiled, and I knew that I had said the right thing, or that what I had said was right enough. That evening, after supper, when I had made your bed and showed you the guest room, again you smiled. I felt in that moment that I was passing a series of tests. That night, as we settled into our bed, my husband and I did not discuss your arrival. We talked instead about what we always talk about. Work, the upkeep of the house, our plans for our son. The last thing we spoke about before drifting off was the overladen orange trees and what to do about them. In the days that followed, we carried on with our lives. You were rarely awake when we left in the mornings and were always there when we returned in the evenings. You were usually sitting in the living room, not occupied with anything, almost as if you were waiting for us to return, though no purpose would be served by implying that you were waiting for us to return. In fact, I could see how it could sound insulting to suggest such a thing, and I apologize for putting it that way. You ate supper with us every night. We usually thanked you after the meal for joining us. You never asked for anything, 
it was for us to anticipate and meet your needs. This was something we learned very quickly. I think we really tried to do our best in this area. More often than not, you ended the night watching a TV series or a movie with us. Our son returned from camp later that summer. We introduced you to him and told him that you were staying here now. He seemed confused. Without speaking, he looked at us, his parents, imploringly. I remember how, when he was born, I swore to protect him with my life. But he too, within a few minutes, came to understand. His manner changed. He let go of his hesitation. You smiled. Above all things, my husband and I wished never to fail you. The months went by, the years. Those of our friends who were able to accept your presence without further explanation remained our friends. The majority could not. I have learned not to judge people for such failures. Our son moved to a different city and we lost touch with him. My husband and I became much older versions of ourselves. We progressed in our careers. My husband was promoted to partner in the law firm that had been retained by the municipality to resolve claims relating to the turbine. We moved to a better house in a better neighborhood. Naturally, you moved with us. Not long after, my husband received his diagnosis. Sometimes, when I open my eyes in the dark, I feel that there is something I have forgotten. What I need to say, what I have been trying to say in this note, is related to this forgetfulness. Now, possibly, I am coming closer to it. Perhaps, finally, I will retrieve it, find the words for it, set it down on paper, and place the paper under your door. Perhaps, finally, the forgotten thing will come back to the surface. But even if I could retrieve it, I cannot be sure of the wisdom in doing so. I do feel I am rambling, so please forgive me. I should probably close the windows now. Perhaps there isn't any question that needs answering, really. Or perhaps I have addressed whatever it is already, and this all has more to do with my chaotic thoughts than with you, you who have been with us so steadily all these years. Mira, I apologize for wasting your time. The main thing is that you should feel at home here, and I think you do. The main thing is that you should feel like our guest. No, not like our guest, like our host, because it is important to properly recognize who is giving and who is receiving. You have been our host, but even putting it that way does not express clearly enough what it is I am trying to say. Portage Asleep in the grass in the dark, 80 people. The darkness is hot and vast and ending. Five weeks have passed since the departure from Onuino. The place they are going to is far, and the way there is hard. 
One man is dead, not sleeping. The white man. They have filled him with salt and wrapped him in soft bark. Sorrow in some of them, and in others only forward momentum. The next step, the next. They are carrying him from the interior to the coast. His too heavy heart removed and left behind. When he was alive, they served him. Now that he is dead, it is he who serves them. Morning, forward movement, pastel on the ridges. Pastel on the far ridges and provisions are running low. It can't be that all 79 of us will reach the coast alive. Now the grass opens its mouths. Now the colors deepen. That was Teju Cole reading his story Incoming. This is his first fiction in the magazine. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Margaret Atwood reads Varieties of Exile by Mavis Gallant. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts. The Writer's Voice is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.